Welcome everybody to the Shop Notes podcast. It's episode 31. I'm your host, Phil Huber, and I'm joined today, as always, by Logan Whitmer and John Doyle. And today we're looking at a reader comment section and a word of the day and a little discussion about what's new and different here at Woodsmith. Thanks for listening. This episode of the Shop Notes podcast is brought to you by Woodsmith Magazine. Woodsmith Magazine has been the trusted source for all your woodworking information for over 40 years. From tips and techniques to furniture projects to shop projects, you'll find it all at Woodsmith Magazine. Subscribe today at woodsmith.com. Okay, so the word of the day is redactophobia. And it's the fear of editors and or editing. Okay, fair enough. It comes from the fact that we are days away from having an issue go out the door. And the comments and or responses that we get because of our editing process. So one of the fun parts about Woodsmith is because we do a lot of the stuff in-house is we route all the articles through different editors and designers and illustrators graphic artists and everybody is free to comment on it as yeah, they that's see fun, fit. <laughs> so the best part is, is that everybody gets to know what's involved in a specific issue. The worst part is for those people who are just joining the Woodsmith team and going through that the first few times and being able to be secure in their self-esteem once an article comes back. <laughs> I remember the first time I got one brought back to me and I was like, there's a lot of red pen on that. <laughs> <laughs> I got told, don't worry. They always look like this to begin with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like it got tagged up with a bloody rabbit. Man. Yeah. You know, I feel like our most brutal editors are no longer here. Like Woodsmith, right? Like, yeah. It's like not necessarily to the point where it was nitpicky, but almost. You know, and I mean, there's there's some proper ways to say certain things. Right. And then there's just, yeah, you can say it both ways, right? Like right. piano hinge versus continuous hinge and. Bingo. Yes. <laughs> Double sided <laughs> tape versus. You know, uh, two-sided tape or carpet tape or carpet tape. Yes. Yeah. And some of that was Woodsmith isms, right? Like we call right. them Woodsmith isms where it's just like, hey, that's the way Woodsmith always, we've always used the term continuous hinge and double-sided tape. Right. And, and that's, I mean, most magazines and newspapers and such will have what they call a style guide. Yeah, for will, sure. So that readers are going to find common references to things that you're just not going to, you know, call the same thing, something totally different, either within an issue or overall. Yeah. And that's the, probably the main reason for it is just having a consistency in how stuff gets labeled, you know, and a lot of it has to do with just woodworking terminology being a little uh, niche to try and understand, you know, the differences between styles and rails and mm-hmm. dados, rabbits and grooves and all that kind of stuff. So 
And I will say that, uh, you know, Woodsmith used to have a distinct editorial voice that we were aiming for that when Don started the magazine, I mean, he wrote all the articles to begin with early on, but then as more staff joined and the magazine got to be more pages and, you know, there's a requirement for a separation of job responsibilities, then the idea was that the editors would write in the same way, so to speak, that Don would have written. Yeah, so it's just a homogenous voice. Right. And that was always a challenge to learn. Like when I started, they told me that it was going to be a solid 12 months to a year and a half before you'd get it. And up until that time, you know, articles would come back, you know, all beat to crap, just, <laughs> you know. And I think overall it's been helpful because, you know, we all come from woodworking in different ways and we're looking at things differently so the overall goal is to end up with articles that are better and serve the reader better so it's not i've never felt for the most part that the comments were critical or competitive or petty petty yeah or you know trying to one-up you or something like that although we did i mean there are a group of comments that we've always referred to as the happy glad comment where it's like you're not really making this better it's just different mm -hmm. you know yeah <clears throat> is it better or different yeah so yeah. but you know, you know i feel like we switched a little bit right like you know now that we have uh, some contributing writers that have been writing with us and stuff we've we've what's the opposite of homogenized we've dehomogenized our writing uh <laughs> where now it's it, it's a little bit looser a little bit more loose right it's a little bit more free to say you know hey this is how i would say it so this is how i'm gonna write it uh, right and as far as articles or projects go you know the the meat and potatoes there is always the project it's the dimensions it's yeah. the uh, construction method shown, which may not be the only way or may not be the, the way that somebody's going to build it, but that's the meat and potatoes is the measurements, the dimensions, the parts, the materials, everything's there. The words are just supplementary, right? Yeah. Supplement what's there. So, you yeah. know, I feel like we've, we've switched that a little bit uh, for the better, in my opinion, it shows some of our personality, or maybe that's worse, <laughs> but <laughs> depending on who you ask. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah but. Well, and I mean, to go back, you know, we in, you know, in trying to write in a consistent voice, that's why Woodsmith historically never had bylines. Correct. Because A, there were always a bunch of people that contributed to an article and B, we were trying to get it to sound similar. So once we started including bylines and like you said, contributing writers, you know, I think it's important that everybody's voice shows through a little bit. So you're going to you know, because that's going to affect, you know, your approach to woodworking and tool choices that you would have or procedural choices or things that you're going to call out that are important to you in building a project or writing about a specific technique or a tool or something like that. And I, I think it's all good. I'd, I'd rather yeah. have, I'd rather have people know who we are and the kind of things that we write about and 
mm-hmm. you know, so. And that we're not just sitting in Des Moines, Iowa with our heads in the sand. Like, hey, there are a lot of other woodworkers throughout the U.S. that are well-known, you know, and we would love to include some of their stuff in our magazine. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So that would be something for people who are listening to the podcast that if you're interested in writing for Woodsmith Magazine on a freelance basis, I would love to hear from you. So if you want to send in a article suggestion or a topic, uh, you just do that. You can do that through our email address, woodsmith at woodsmith.com. That would be the best way to get in touch with us and we can get you plugged into the calendar. So John, as a, as a designer, you definitely get to experience editing and a whole different perspective than what Logan and I do. Right. Yes. Yeah. I've, uh, especially working on like, uh, readers tips and stuff. I remember just getting a comment from somebody that just said, Hmm. There's like 12 M's. On the- <laughs> So I'm not going to name names of who wrote that. But. I'll throw Phil under the bus. <laughs> when, when Phil does it, not that he doesn't necessarily agree with something, but he just has that hmm comment. Like, it's like hmm. saying, I'm not mad, I'm just disappointed. <laughs> or go back and sit in the corner and think about what you did. Right. Come back and then talk it's to me. It's more like, you know what you did. Yeah. Yeah. With that. <laughs> I don't need to explain that to you. Oh, yeah. So there's, yes. About no, the, uh, and... the tips, the tip section has always been kind of the, uh, baptism by fire for <laughs> editors when they first start at Woodsmith is, um, doing tips. That was the first thing that I did. And I actually wrote the tips for Woodsmith and shop notes for I think like seven years, which was just a lot. Mm-hmm. John, unfortunately, as the new designer, has yeah. never been able to graduate from tips. As of the new the rookie of for 15 years. Right. So, <laughs> so I have it as being a, registered as a by, by fire for the like all the new editors because I I'll just make stuff up and just throw it at you know last minute. Mm-hmm. It's like this is what I came up with. Right, surprise. Well, and to be fair, some of the tips that we get, uh, some of the tips we get from readers are fantastic, right? Some of them are like, oh, that's amazing. Some of them are a solution looking for a problem. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like that's a lot of them, and those are tend to be the ones that get the hmm, yeah, because they're very specific to their situation and it's like hard to generalize it for everybody else so it's like definitely yes it's interesting like, hey when i need to drill a you know 1364th hole in the you know three degree tangent of this toy wheel this is my jig i made to do it it's like yeah. okay that's really creative and clever and awesome but not a whole lot of application for most of our readers right yeah but it can be interesting, though. Yeah. No, it's always, I was, it's kind of funny to me to see the ingenuity of people. And then I, John's challenge as the designer for it is the 
like clean up the design a little bit because sometimes, well, you know, a lot of times readers will send in photographs of what they've, what their jig is and maybe a couple of sketches or drawings and understandably, because we would do it in our own shops, they're made from scrounged material and leftover hardware and, and we try to present it in a way that is pretty clean. So we'll use consistent materials and try and make sure that all the knobs and stuff are about the same size and shape and yep. all that kind of stuff. Cause it's just about <clears throat> not wanting to be distracting. Right. And you want to be able people to be able to source the parts that right. Then yeah. going to, you know, not know where to get a bent finish nail that's been, you know, <laughs> cut to a certain size or, some yeah. random parts that that you're just not gonna be able to find typically so yep. okay so i wanted to share a reader letter okay. um that we got as a response to the podcast so not really reader listener anyway it's uh it says hi fellas i'm a truck driver and listen to your podcast a lot i was shocked that all the problems and challenges i face in my small shop you guys face at your home. I was under the impression that you guys are pros and always make the perfect cut, miters, and correct measurements. It's nice to know you guys struggle with the same issues as I do. You, have, you all have small shops, storage problems, and everything that goes with it. It's nice to get a perspective from people who are just regular guys who love woodworking. Thanks, and keep up the great work, Brent Hopkins. Oh yep. man, people know we're not professionals now. Oh, <laughs> oh no. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess that that is one thing that I feel like is a little different with us at Woodsmith, right? Like we do this full time. Yeah. I mean, we, we do woodworking for a living in some roundabout way, right? Uh, but this is our hobby for the most part. So it's not like, like, yeah, we're in a shop. We hate doing miters because they suck. <laughs> like, and they're hard <laughs> to nail the first time. <laughs> like, I mean, you know, we're not, we're not professional cabinet makers reproducing 16th century furniture. No. Yeah. And yeah. part of that is that we have a, you know, a background and love for woodworking and experience in it. But every project we're doing something new, you know, something we haven't done before. So part of it is our learning process on a project and how we can, you know, learn from that and then best teach the reader how to do right. it based on what we've learned. So it's not like we knew what we were doing going into it a lot of times. I mean, Chris Fitch might, but <laughs> part of it is our the learning process that we went through. So yeah. And, and, how to convey that yeah well and i guess some of that is like i guess some of that uh preconceived notion that we're 100 percent professionals we land that every time i guess some of that probably comes across from the fact that we do do this for a living and part of that living is us researching and testing and trying stuff right, right. so it's like you know hey if i'm gonna build a you know a, a federal bow front you know, side table that has marquetry, 
I'm going to spend two weeks researching marketry and trying it out before I do it on camera, before we do it in an article. I mean, there's a lot of research and practice and stuff that goes into something before we're ready to show it to the world. So I guess maybe that's where some of that, you know, preconceived, like, hey, you guys are expert professional woodworkers comes from. It's like, there's a lot of, there's a lot of practice before the game. Right. Yeah. And that's kind of been, that mentality has been kind of conveyed if, People watch the TV show over the last, you know, 13 seasons where they see an edited project where each part's going together perfectly and each cut is perfect. But what they didn't see is like, what was it? The sliding dovetail on the slant front desk. <laughs> we go to slide in with glue and it seizes up halfway through and there's five of us putting clamps on it and beating it with a mallet and for about an hour until we get it together and then cameras go back on and it's like, oh, it went together perfectly. Slid yeah. right in. Yeah. <laughs> like you can do it too. <laughs> so, there is some of that. There's some off camera cursing and sweating and, and bleeding and just like in everybody else's shop. And so that part gets edited out in the TV show. But I think that's a lot of what woodworking is, is, you you make a mistake or you have a problem and then how do you fix it or how do you figure it out or right and it could be different every time it's not going to be the same uh, yeah you know, each time or what did what did you learn to avoid doing that right you know because you know it, i get the idea of wanting to share goofs and stuff like that but then there's also a flip side of we have a limited amount of space in the magazine and to avoid confusion i want to write about the ways that I've found to make it work rather than confuse somebody by explaining what I did wrong. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's telling when we get to the end of each episode and the, and the project has gone together and it's like, wow, how did that happen? <laughs> I think every issue or every episode we look at it, they're like, oh crap, it worked again. Yeah. <laughs> every single time. It's like, Hey, yeah, three people working on uh, three different parts of a project, and then John kind of working on it all. It's like, how the heck did that come together? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, you know, it's like fitting all the little robots together to make one big super robot. Right. Yeah, it's a Voltron <laughs> experience. Totally. <Yes>. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> so, can we address a couple other? Listener comments? Bring it on. All right. So there's a couple of them that pop into my mind. The first one was on our podcast a couple of episodes ago. We were talking about Harbor Freight, right? Sure. I was talking about some of my Harbor Freight purchases and trying to uh, justify buying a set of tools to go thumbnail and stuff. And we had one guy that was just livid. And I don't remember exactly what he said, but something about how, you know, Harbor Freight is junk. I will never buy stuff made in china it, give me your guys' opinions is that like is that a legitimate stance that somebody can take uh or do we just have too much stuff in the u.s that's sourced from outside the u.s because there's a give and take there right like you might get better quality here in the u.s but you might not mm -hmm. and you're probably going to pay more for it so where does that I guess, where is that give and take and how do you decide? Because, right. I mean, in a perfect world, I'm going to buy stuff made in the U.S. Sure. I'm going to go out of my way for it, though. Right. 
yeah, it's hard to live in a world of absolutes like that. Drawing the line of like, I'm never going to do this or I can't ever do that. Or because I'm sure that a lot of the US made stuff is with foreign parts and yeah, together here or, you know, that kind of thing. So it's just hard to say you got to weigh the cost and quality and I guess whatever it is that you're looking for. So, yeah. And I, I think the one of the big things is just the the slam on whether it's Harbor Freight or you know any of the other super discount stores that uh, that it's about quality. And I get that, but you know, like you were talking about, and some of the tools that we talked about was these were things that we're not using every day. Yeah, and. Uh, we're not relying on it for our livelihood. So even though the quality is lower compared to other tools, um, you know, if you're going to use a, you know, pulley remover three times in your life, getting one at Harbor Freight is you're, you've just bought a lifetime tool, you know? Exactly. So you know, if you were a mechanic or somebody that did that full time, then you're going to use it a lot more and you're going to spend money on a quality tool because you need to depend on it. But yeah, well, I guess the biggest thing that gets me uh, f from this whole thing is that instantly I think anything that's labeled, you know, from China, from Taiwan, from Japan, Japan, you know, is instantly labeled as it's junk. Right, which I don't feel is fair, and I don't feel like that's necessarily the case, right? Right. I mean, like John mentioned, even if you buy something that's U.S. made, there's still probably a ton of parts in there that are sourced from overseas, whether that's Asia or Europe or wherever. Um, and there's always been this, I guess, this preconceived notion that you know the the Asian-made stuff is junk, but you buy something that's made in Switzerland or Germany, oh, it's it's good steel, you know, it's, it's German made. It's meant to last a lifetime. It's like, is that really true? Cause I, in my opinion, doesn't feel like it, you know, like I've, I've owned German cars. They break as much as my repair. So I guess, I guess to me is, I, I feel like it's kind of an outdated notion, isn't it? Or is it just my opinion? Yeah, I, well, I mean, it's obviously your opinion, but I think it's also a sliding scale, too, because I feel like there were, and I don't know, not to sound like I'm complaining about it, but we're going to get dinged for using a low-end discount tool on the one hand, but then we're also going to get dinged if we use a high-end, small-batch maker of you know, $250 coping saws or yeah. premium track saws or something like that. So where's the middle ground, you know, and um, you know, I don't know what to say on that. Cause it's, you know, I get, I get the criticism of it. You know, I, people mm -hmm. ask me when I do seminars and stuff on router bits or something like that, do you buy the, you know, the 48 pack for, 1995 or do you buy bits from higher end manufacturers and i always recommend 
quality makers, no matter where they're made, you know, there are quality makers of router bits. And to me, that's one of those things where it's really important, you know, like having a good yeah. table saw blade, you know? Yeah. I guess that, that's, yeah, that's what I'm getting at is just because it's from China doesn't mean it's not a quality maker or just because it's from Taiwan or Japan doesn't mean it's not a quality maker. You know, I mean, like this bridge city chopstick master, I mean, this thing's freaking beautifully built. It's made in China. Right. But you know what? This thing weighs about 14 pounds. It's made very well. And it works amazing. Like, yeah. So, yeah, I would love to hear people's perspective on that. Like, where do they f fall in terms of tool buying? Because at some point, you know, like, I would love to buy American on stuff. But there are some tools that nobody makes them in America. You know? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I get that there are you know there are places that are well known for stuff. You know, you go to buy a vintage hand tool. Sheffield steel is going to be good, right? I mean, right. Sheffield was was the steel capital of the you know late nineteenth century. It's going to be good steel. Um, does that mean that it's? I mean, the, that's going to be better steel than going to Harbor Freight and buying a Harbor Freight chisel. It is, right. um, uh, but you know, it's just it's one of those things that kind of it kind of rubbed me the wrong way when it's like, oh, don't buy Chinese aircraft. Well, I don't want to spend the money for you know a premium American or German made tool because it doesn't matter to me. And and what's to say? Uh, I guess from my perspective, why spend more if I'm not going to use it that much? And just because it's Chinese made, you're supporting jobs in China. I mean, you know, to me, it's like, I, I guess I don't uh, discriminate on where I'm spending my money as long as it's a quality made tool or it fits the money I'm spending. Right. So. Okay. Okay. I had one more. Oh, John one more. What you got? I was just going to say, I feel like you're going to get a lot of comments off of this. I, <laughs> is that what you're looking for? I thrive on them. Okay. Uh, no, so, so there was one more I had, uh, and this was actually in response to a YouTube video that we had. Uh, that we put up a couple of months ago. It was the uh, drill press sharpening station. Okay. First of all, a thousand comments about my sleeves on that video. Like, I think our camera perspective on that is terrible because never once was my sleeves ever close to the rotating chuck. So just to clear the air on that okay because a bunch of people like yeah probably could have pushed them. i yeah people see more of your arm. Arm. i know so yeah so it's like fun. there's that but i guess the other the other thing that a lot of people commented on in that video and i want to know your guys' opinions on this as well when you're sharpening a tool do you sharpen it with whatever you're sharpening rotating to you or away from you because there are a bunch of people that said, why are you sharpening on that side of the platen with the, the disc spinning towards the chisel? It's going to catch. It's going to throw that chisel at you a thousand miles an hour, stick in your neck, cut your jugular vein, and you're going to bleed out on the floor. <laughs> I mean, that was at the outtakes. That was at the outtakes, yes. Uh, that happened. I guess, what, what's your guys' thoughts? Is that a legitimate argument? Because I have always sharpened with stuff sharpening towards me. Grinders work that way. The Tormek works that way. Right. Um, the Work Sharp, uh, I had one for a while. I don't remember which way it sharpened. 
But my Tormac, I actually have the Rikon version of the Tormac, a little kick to one of our sponsors. Uh, I love it. And it's direct, it's multi-directional. So I can change the wheel to be to me or away from me. So to, towards the tool or away from the tool. And I find that it cuts, it gives me a much better edge if it's cutting towards the tool than away from the tool. If it's yeah. cutting away, it, it's kind of like, it, it almost feels like it's fraying the edge as it's sharpening. So what are your guys' thoughts? Is that a legitimate fear that if you're sharpening with that platen writing towards the chisel, is there a is there a uh, a possibility of that chisel edge catching and throwing that chisel back at you? Uh, I don't, I feel like catching and throwing back at you is probably pretty minimal as a risk. I think probably the larger issue is just catching and tearing the paper and spoiling spoiling the disc and or the edge at that point. You know, whereas yeah. it's going away from you, you're not as likely to tear the paper. Yeah, it might depend on how experienced you are with the sharpening techniques. Because like what you said, the maybe a less experienced person is going to hold it in a manner or, you know, tip it enough where a corner is going to catch yeah. that sample. So I don't know if you start out that way where you go the intuitive route with it spinning away from the tool or yeah i don't know what the the right answer is there but yeah i've never sharpened a... a tool in my life so i don't <laughs> <laughs> oh we know john <laughs> <laughs> so we did a shop notes did a a narrow belt sander shop built tool and that was something that we talked about in the design phase of it was which way should the motor go. And I think when we originally designed it, we had a two way switch on it so that you could have the belt coming down into the table or going away from it, mm -hmm. you know, depending, you know, if you were going to use it for sharpening and then we've seen, you know, different narrow belt. Um, I mean, they're narrow belt sanders, but knife makers use them for making cutlery and stuff like that. And, yeah. You know, it's, I don't know that it's inherently more dangerous one way or the other, in my opinion. I think the bigger issue is misusing it and having the, having the belt tear, catch and sure. tear, or the disc in the, in the case of that drill press sander. Sure. Well, I just, and I just pulled up the plan and looked at the, the photo. The photo does show sharpening with the disc traveling away. Yeah. Um, personally, if I can, I'm always going to have, if I had to, so if I'm sitting there with an oil stone and I'm sharpening a bevel and you said, you can only sharpen in one direction, are you going to pull it towards you or push it away? And I'm always going to push it away from me. Yeah. I, I feel like that it gives you a better edge. I'm a contrarian. <laughs> <laughs> when you're pushing away from you, then you're more likely to create, uh, a burr on the backside of your tool so you know that you're right up to the edge which which that that follows along with what i found with my my rikon uh, tormek style sharpener um yeah. i tried to sharpen um i didn't try i did sharpen all my kitchen knives on it when i when i first got it and i noticed on those if i had the disc 
going or the the uh, grinding wheel on it traveling away, I never got a burr. Never got a burr, and the edge just looked thin and frail. It looked like a like a hair comb almost. Uh, but as soon as I switched the the direction and had it coming towards the knife, uh, it sharpened much better. I got a burr on the backside, knew and that was sharp. Flip it over and be done with it. So it was just an interesting. Yeah, interesting comment a lot of people made, um, which never struck me because I've always been a sharpened towards the belt. I mean, sharpened towards the tool. I've always yeah. been in that that key. Um, I didn't realize that uh, people would be uh, would take an issue with that, but it makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So on the same video, we did have one guy. I don't know if you saw that comment, John. Uh, he asked, he said, "Hey, I looked up the sharpener." And this was originally published in Shop Notes magazine uh, from like 2009. Where do you guys get off selling this as your plan? It's like, well, sir, we own Shop Notes magazine. So, <laughs> I mean, it is our plan. <laughs> like, uh, that was funny, which I'm, I'm glad that people are, are questioning that because we're all familiar with the Ted's Woodworking 16,000 plans and yeah. they're just. They're just pirated. ripped off publications. Yeah, they're pirated publications. So it's our plans, wood magazines, fine woodworkings, popular woodworkings plans. It's all of the big uh, woodworking magazines plans in in one pirated bundle for your enjoyment. Uh, <laughs> and I, so I'm glad people are questioning it. But it's like, yeah, that was our magazine. So, you know, thanks, but it is ours to sell. Yes. Yep. So one, one other thing that I wanted to bring up before we uh, finish here is one of my goals for this year was to offer more classes and teaching opportunities because I think that's one thing that a lot of us here enjoy doing is to meet with other woodworkers and uh, share what we've learned about woodworking, whether it's projects or techniques or things like that. So we had six classes scheduled for this year and all of them have been canceled because of the virus. But one of the things that we do offer is our online seminars. We have a one seminar a month and we have one coming up and it escapes me now what the topic is. Bevel angles. Bevel cool. angles shows sharpening. And uh, so Related to that is I wanted to let people know is that we've, we're offering six of our seminars that we've done in the past for free so that people can still get that woodworking education and be able to see what our Woodsmith Live uh, online seminars are like without having to sign up. So you get the chance to test drive those and also learn about some of the things that we've talked about in past seminars. So there's one on the bandsaw and drill press using chisels, think like finishing tips, setting up shop, all of those kind of things. So if you want to check those out, they're at uh, woodsmithshop.com slash seminars. You'll be able to find those there. And then find out about the seminars that we have coming up for this year. So, well, before John and I have to get back to the studio, Logan, what, do you been, what have you been working on? Um, you know, I have been messing around with this chopstick master. This thing is a freaking blast. I can't wait to bring it in and do some video edition stuff with it. Uh, so this is, I mean, it's just, it's a, it's a tool I bought with, with 
you know, this is not a sponsored thing, but I'm just having so much fun making chopsticks. Like, it sounds so <laughs> stupid, and I understand that. But God, it's so therapeutic. I mean, it takes like five minutes to make a set of chopsticks. So when uh, this whole COVID thing's done and we can finally get together with people, I think my wife and I are going to do a sushi party at our house. We'll come over and you make your own chopsticks and then eat dinner. You know, I think it'll be fun. Other than that, I've been working on this camper. This week has been beautiful. Uh, the last three or four days have been in the mid-70s. So, you know, af- in the afternoons, uh, after all, my proofreading and stuff has been done and my corrections have been made. I've been jumping into the camper and doing a little bit of work. Um, and I must say, it's it's very, coming from uh, somebody who has built a lot of, uh, finished a lot of basements and been involved in house construction for, you know, as long as I can even remember. It's very uh, therapeutic having no rules when you're doing something. <laughs> <laughs> not, not that I am shortcutting stuff in this camper, but it's like, it doesn't really matter. So it's like, I had to rip out some some areas of the walls that were water damaged. And I'm like, how am I gonna do this up to code? I'm like, there's no code. It's a freaking camper. It doesn't really matter. Like <laughs> two by two batten strip for framing. Heck yeah. Am I going to use some construction adhesive to glue this wall panel on and then use the, my Ryobi brand nailer to nail it up? You bet I am. So it's kind of fun and freeing. Um, I just, I kind of wish that we would get some rain here in the next couple days uh, because I got what I think is all the leaks that were in it sealed up. Um, and I'm just waiting for the rain because I want to yeah. see it. I, I've tried putting a sprinkler on it and it just doesn't saturate it the way it rain does. So, hmm. so yeah, but I've been enjoying the, the nice cool evenings out there. Um, you know, not necessarily fine with more of, you know, me, man, me have hammer, me nail stuff together. Um, so it's been, <laughs> it's been fun though. So that's what I've been working on. So are you going to make a bunch of chopsticks and sell American made chopsticks in China? <laughs> Oh, oh yeah there it is uh maybe maybe you know i did have a little bit of a let me grab this thing. i had a little bit of a surprise the other day when i when i i made a couple chopsticks upstairs and then i brought it down here into my shop and i was like i think there's something underneath there's this uh this foam foam pad right so if you guys are watching on youtube there's a foam pad that held everything in it and i'm like that looks like it's really shallow for how deep this box is and it was like a little hidden surprise it came underneath with little chopstick bags so look at that i know oh boy and it even came with like a dozen blanks i know i spent like 20 minutes in the shop the other day sanding these blanks down to seven millimeters by seven millimeters by 250 millimeters and it came with a bunch so that was a fun little surprise when i when i opened it up but yes maybe i will start selling american-made chopsticks in uh the greater asia area there you go ranch out there you go yep i wonder what the taxes would be on that like the export taxes all of it (laughs) <laughs> I would make 14 cents per pair. <laughs> yep. Awesome. All right. So I'm going to look for your Etsy shop now. Okay. John, what do you got? Uh, I don't know. I finished up that uh, box joint jig last week and we've been messing around with that a little bit. So I'm kind of, 
I'm in the jig bug. I have the jig bug, and I'm kind of looking for the next thing that I can make out with all make with all the little scrap pieces of uh, Baltic birch I have laying around. So, all right. I don't know if you guys have any suggestions or been collecting knobs and threaded inserts, and you can make a woodsmith chopstick master. Ooh, <laughs> there you go. Saw, a table saw jig. Yeah, there yes. you go. And then just maybe you can turn it into shop projects and it'd be like artisanal drawboard pegs or something like that. Yes. That helps. So I was on vacation earlier this week, so I haven't been really doing too much. I'm looking forward to finishing up my shoulder plane. It's just a matter of making the making the wedge now and shaping it to something that's comfortable. And I'm looking forward to honing up the blade again and getting that to work. So hopefully next week I can show you the final version of that one. Yeah. When you're on vacation like that, so you were down in Missouri, right? Missouri is not much different than Iowa as far as like species of trees. But if you ever go anywhere further, do you ever have a desire to bring wood back with oh, you? Oh, yeah. Okay. I, say, I, I didn't know if that was just a me thing or what. No. But when I was down in Vegas turning, I was, uh, or for a class, a turning class, I was like, God, I would really love to find some like desert ironwood or something native to the Southwest to bring back home. Uh, I was just up in Minnesota fishing, uh, two weeks ago. It's like, I could cut a section of that birch tree and bring it back with me. Uh, it's, it's a weird thing. Like I have no yeah. need for it, but right. I don't want to collect wood from travel from my travels. Especially stuff that you wouldn't necessarily find as uh, commercially available. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like, you know, desert ironwood. I mean, you can buy turning blanks, but it's like, oh, how cool would that be to bring a log back? You know, just a small section, three, three, four foot. You know, I usually have my truck, so I got room. Um, It's like our previous editor, uh, Vince, he had had some ebony logs, like straight up, like six or seven foot long, pretty big ebony logs that were shipped from Africa uh, back in the like thirties. He said they were, it was a a dentist was over there or something and he bought these logs and just wrote his name on it with white paint and shipped them in the mail. (laughs) Like that's amazing. I kind of want to do that. So, or like go out to the Northwest and get some like redwood. That'd be awesome. Yeah, or like really nice Sitka spruce or something. Or... Exactly, yeah. Just some, something that's kind of odd that we don't see very often. Yeah. So if any of our listeners live in the Northwest and want to send us some Sitka spruce <laughs> or some barge <laughs> or some redwood, feel free. I will get you our address. <laughs> I would love to see a log show up. That would be amazing. There you go. Thanks for listening for this episode of the Shop Notes podcast. Remember, you can subscribe to the podcast wherever you get other podcasts, whether it's Apple or Google or Stitcher or SoundCloud, wherever you find your podcast, you can subscribe there. Also, feel free to leave a good review and a rating so that we can get our podcast in front of more listeners like you. As always, if you have any questions, comments, or smart remarks that you want to share with us here at the Shop Notes podcast, you can reach us. The email address is woodsmith at woodsmith.com. Also, don't forget to 
know that our podcasts are also available on YouTube, so you can see our lovely faces as we've been talking about various things in woodworking. So we'll see you next week for the next episode of the Shop Notes Podcast. Bye, everybody. This episode of the Shop Notes Podcast is brought to you by Woodsmith Plans. You'll find nearly a thousand plans covering everything that you'd want to build. From furniture projects to gift projects, kitchen accessories, workshop projects and jigs, and more. Find your next project at woodsmithplans.com.